Welcome to the Global Hearted Podcast, where your heart for people around the world can deepen, and where you can be empowered to better reflect Jesus and His heart for all to know Him. I'm Jason Paulson, here with Anthony Taylor for today's discussion. Anthony, in our last episode, we talked about valuing religious cultures among the frontier peoples how we need to see the redeeming work of God among the religions so that we can affirm the bright spots of the culture that God uses to draw the frontier peoples to himself. Um, In this episode, we're going to start in on uh, a series about principles that we can use to shape our engagement with frontier peoples. This first principle flows uh, from what we talked about last week, and this principle is use their religious forms and symbols. So can you talk about what you mean by use their religious forms and symbols? Jason, that's a really good question. And I think we got to take the conversation and make it a bit more practical, you know, with our feet on the ground, because what, what we kind of ended with last time we were together is we, we want to understand that God has, is present and working among people as the creator, the preserver, the revealer, and the redeemer. And so when we realize that, we, you know, I said that we're released to affirm that a bright spot exists in each of the cultures of the frontier peoples. And we're free to look for those bright spots. And the, you know, these bridges to God that he has mysteriously enabled to exist within these cultures. Um, it's not that we understand, can understand all that God does. You know, I think that's when, you know, with a story of Job, when Job all of a sudden, you know, encounters God, God shows up and he reveals himself. He doesn't answer Job's questions. He, he asks a ton of questions. And I think the point of all those questions to Job is to say, you know, I know what I'm doing. You you don't need to understand it all. I just know what I'm doing and you need to trust me. And so there is an element of mystery because we love God, we can trust him and, and we can just allow him to do what he does. And so therefore we don't need to fully understand how God does these things, it works in cultures, but we can see that he has mysteriously enabled to exist within these cultures, bridges to him. And this includes, you know, some of the religious ideas, some of the religious forms and practices. And, you know, we were looking at Diwali and you could say even the festival of lights, that can be used as something to draw people to him or to affirm their faith in him. This is kind of a flashpoint because I had immediately, I was talking about this with somebody else, you know, somebody, you know, a, a woman who is South Asian background, but she grew up here in the United States, um, but she was very firm in saying, you know, Diwali, you know, the root of it is just satanic and we have to completely be separate from that. And, <clears throat> you know, she's, She's not Hindu background. And so she's projecting an idea upon it that, that my Hindu background friend who is a follower of Jesus in, in Delhi would totally disagree with, you know. So, you know, who's right in all of this? And so as outside observers, 
if we realize that God is at work, then we can see that these cultural, these religious forms, religious symbols, um, they have, you know, they, they can be used as a bridge to God. And we don't have to have this, this super negative idea towards them. And why is this so important? Because, you know, the forms and the symbols of any culture are imbued with meaning. And they have power to ignite an emotional response that's either positive or negative. And these symbols, these forms and these symbols are seamlessly woven into the fabric of people's minds and emotions. And, you know, in, in our own cultural settings, we don't typically think about the power of forms and symbols. We just naturally and automatically respond to them. Uh, take, for example, the Statue of Liberty. You know, that's a, a powerful form in our culture, a powerful symbol. And just the sight of it in a picture typically evokes a pleasant emotion. Now, for me, it evokes a fairly strong positive emotion because my great-grandfather and grandmother came by that statue as they arrived in the United States from Germany. You know, but if we're looking at a different cultural form or symbol, you know, take the German swastika, you know, that evokes an immediate negative emotion because it's attached to the absolute tyranny and inhumanity of the Third Reich. So it's not like symbols are neutral. You know, they, now some symbols might be neutral, but, you know, many symbols are either have a very positive connection to it or a very negative connection to it. And it's the same with a culture's religious forms and symbols. And it's because of the power of these religious forms and symbols, you know, it's because they have uh, a power, you know, this unnerves many of us who seek to represent Jesus among the frontier peoples because, you know, we don't typically have problems with forms or symbols that are typically just cultural, but if they are attached, if they have some religious dimension to them, then we get concerned because we, we have a fear. Oh, is there a demonic unseen force behind it? You know, let's make this practical. Let's take one particular form that's in India. People who go to India or people have seen pictures of, of women in India, they see that, you know, if a woman is from a Hindu background, she has a red dot on her forehead. It's called a bindi. In many South Asian Christian circles, wearing the bindi is forbidden. And because the Christians see it as having a hidden demonic meaning, you know, it symbolizes the third eye of Lord Shiva. And so I was in India and I, I saw one believing woman from a Hindu background, and let's call her Anjali, and she consistently wore the bindi. And so I asked her why. And she said, you know, it's from my fellow South Asian Christians that I heard that the bindi symbolizes the third eye of Lord Shiva. Now, I never heard that in my Hindu understanding. And women would not typically wear something that symbolizes the power of the male god, Shiva. Actually, Shivite men wear vibhuti, 
which is an ash with a mark in its center, to symbolize Shiva. But women are generally not allowed to do that. Now, regarding the bindi that we women wear on our forehead, it's usually a symbol of being married and prosperous. Now, when Anjali turned to Jesus, she was taught by her Christian friends not to wear the bindi. And she also noticed that the Christian women let their hair stay unbraided um, and fall freely on their shoulders. And, you know, and in, you know, in certain cultures, you know, to let your hair be unbraided in public is very suggestive. Um, now, I don't know if that had that meaning in her culture, but in the cultures I lived, you, as a woman, you wouldn't let your hair be unbraided. Um, and so, you know, so she let her hair fall freely on her shoulders and she took the bindi off. And when she began to do this, her father objected and he said to her, am I dead that you're not wearing the bindi and you're wearing your hair loose? Anjali went on to say, basically in my community, we refrain from wearing bindi and leaving our hair open only when we're in mourning. Traditionally, widows were not allowed to wear bindis. And that's the understanding I grew up with. But each community has its own meaning for it. Today, we don't wear the kukum powder, you know, which would be the powder that they would make a bindi from. But our bindis are colored stickers that we buy in the store. And there's a, you know, we wear them like a beauty accessory, like Christian women use lipstick or eyeliner. They use lipstick and eyeliner because they like it and they look good with it. I wear it for both reasons, cultural and because of the, the look of it on my face. So the South Asian Christian communities that Anjali was in relationship with were limited by their lack of accurate information, by their fear of the evil one, and by their lack of understanding about Jesus, who is our Lord and Redeemer. Just as Jesus can extend his lordship over Diwali, he can extend his redeeming lordship over the Bindi. And he wants to extend his lordship over so much more. Because Jesus' goal is to set as much of people's cultures free from all that binds them, even the evil ones. He doesn't, he doesn't want to obliterate the many things that make their culture distinct. If we can think about that and begin to ponder about the different cultural forms that we come up across, we can take a couple of principles here, a few principles to help us think about cultural forms, how significant they are and whether or not they should be adopted. And in particular, the religious forms. And ultimately, this is, shouldn't really be our, we analyzing it and accepting or rejecting this. The, the ultimate analysis has to be the people themselves. But as we approach the conversation, we need to liberate ourselves from the things that restrict us. Otherwise, we're going to impose those restrictions on others. And so that's why it's helpful to have this conversation. One of the concerns, and it's a real concern, 
that we have about thinking about religious forms is the question of syncretism. And, and it's a valid question. Will the use of religious forms lead to merging false religious beliefs with the true faith? Now, as important as the question of syncretism is, I have found that it's typically asked by people outside of the community rather than those within the community. And it was the Christians that lived in the same city as Anjali that were concerned about her use of the, of the bindi. And yet, since they were not part of her community, they had a belief about the bindi that no one in Anjali's community shared. No one in Anjali's community thought that the bindi symbolized the third eye of the Lord Shiva. <laughs> and yet, that is an idea that everybody in the Christian community shared. You know, when Anjali said to her friends, you know, that's not true. Nobody believes that. There's just the Christians couldn't accept that their idea was wrong. And that's why it's important for insiders, any particular believing community, to do the reflecting over what a form really means and what its impact can be. They need to be free to decide if it can come under the lordship of Jesus. So what are the principles? Well, I'd say the first principle, it states that the greater the cultural distance between cultural groups, the less certain we can be that the messages that are communicated between the groups will be understood. And the example of the Bindi illustrates this principle. There's two communities. They live side by side in the same city. And they're looking at the same cultural form. And then in this case, the Bindi. And the message the Bindi conveyed within each community was radically different. To one community, it represented the third eye of Lord Shiva. For the other community, it was cosmetic to enhance one's looks. And it had a deeper meaning. It meant that she, as a woman, loved her father and was a member of her community. <laughs> and so, you know, so the, the principle is the greater the cultural distance between the cultural groups, the less certain we can be that the messages communicated between the groups will be understood. So here within the group, Anjali's community understood what the, the Bindi meant, but the other group had no idea of the true meaning of that. And so they'd heard something and they just believed it, but they didn't ever check to see if, is that what these people really think? So that's just one example. So here's another example. What about the color of cloth? The color of cloth can convey conflicting me messages to different cultural groups. You know, for a number of years, I taught in South Asia. I taught English and, you know, students wanted to learn English because so, it would enhance their, their employment you know, capabilities. So, you know, I was there to help, help them learn English. One day I was talking with my students and we got on the subject of weddings. And I described the typical wedding in the U.S. And I mentioned that the bride typically wears a very extravagant white dress. And I had a, had a picture of it. Now, 
in in my culture, you know, and I don't know if it continues to this day to have the same meaning, brides still wear white dresses, but white typically symbolized the purity of the bride. And so the students were amazed. They immediately responded by saying that no bride in their culture would ever wear white at her <laughs> at her wedding. And I said, well, why is that? I was just kind of surprised. I didn't know why. And their reply was that white was the color of the kapan, which is the cloth that you wrap the dead body in as you take it for burial. And I, so I said, well, what color does a bride get married in? And they said, red. And that's when I got surprised because a few brides in the West would ever get married in red. Red in, in Western cultures, particularly in the context of weddings, you know, has a connotation that, you know, is somewhat negative. You know, and if a woman is wearing red, she's just being somewhat radical to the to the tradition. But um, you know, so here's a here's a simp a basic cultural form <laughs> that's that is religious to some degree. I mean, it's very cultural, but it's the bridal dress. So we have color having meaning. How do you know all this? You can't know it unless you're an insider in the culture, and then you can evaluate what these things mean. Red symbol to my friend, my students, red symbolized joy and celebration, and that's what a the bride should be wearing. I mean, it's this is a time to celebrate. You know, so these are forms, and you know, and they are cultural, but they can also be religious at the same time. Now, words are also forms that carry meaning. When my wife and I went to serve in South Asia, you know, we were committed to sharing our faith um, whenever we could, whenever it was appropriate. And to facilitate my language learning, I would read through the New Testament in the language we were learning. And as I was reading the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, I discovered that the word used to translate transgressions, forgive us our, our transgressions as we for, forgive those who transgress against us, that the, the word used to translate transgressions or debts in some translations was the word used for mistakes. Now, I was stunned when I read that. I went, wow, that word only means mistake. You know, from my understanding, I'm learning the language. So, you know, from my theological training, you know, sin is sin and has to be seen as utterly sinful, no matter what it is. And sins are not mistakes. They are transgressions. You know, you want to emphasize that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and if you don't emphasize that, and people may think, oh, it's not really all that bad. So you want to say all sin is sin, and they are transgressions against the Lord's commandments. I mean, that was that was deeply woven into my un theological understanding. I wasn't alone in thinking this. The expatriate Christian community I was a part of agreed. So to talk about our sins, we used the word that clearly meant sin, which in the language we were learning was guna. We all knew that our hosts only use this specific word 
whenever they talked about the big sins, such as drunkenness, murder, and adultery. Now, they used other words to talk about what they considered to be the lesser sins. Yet, our theological training taught us to view all sin as sin, and all of it separated us from God. And so we needed to emphasize that even a white lie is a lie, and that separates us from God. We felt we needed to use the word guna, the, the, the harsh, the bigger, more potent word, to, to you know, communicate what we wanted to communicate. Because we wanted to drive home the point that sin, all sin, was utterly sinful. And we would never use the word galati, which is what was the other word, which we thought, well, that means mistake. Well, it took me years. I'm a slow learner. Uh, it took me years to discover that our devotion to being theologically right only served to reinforce the negative stereotypes <laughs> that our hosts had of us. Oh, they thought, you know, their assumption is Christians are lascivious. You know, they, they don't know. They haven't lived here and they haven't seen, you know, the diversity of what constitutes Christian. They think all you know, all Americans are Christians and, you know, and, you know, you've got people that are sleeping around and people that are getting drunk. And um, especially if you're thinking about college students, 18, they're going out and getting hammered, you know, you know, you've got people that are going to soccer in the Brits, the soccer games, you know, people are drinking quite heavily after and before, they even do that here with football games. It, but I'm sure that some people are getting hammered and other people are just having fun. But the point is, people are out there getting hammered. So that's the stereotype. And so by our word choice, we are only reinforcing that stereotype. After a while, you know, once they got to know us, they began to realize that our lives, you know, we weren't drunkards. We weren't adulterers. You know, we were morally upright people. I mean, we're just trying to live for the Lord. We just happen to be there living for the Lord. And they realized, you know, these people aren't lascivious. They're morally upright. And we created a necessary confusion and misunderstanding about how we talked about our lives prior to coming to Jesus. I also began to realize that the word I thought meant mistake by the way it's said and in the context that it said, can also indicate that the action committed was seriously wrong. You know, so the word that was chosen for the, to be used in the Lord's Prayer was actually a good choice. And so this validates the principle the greater the cultural distance between the cultural groups, the less certain we can be that the messages communicated between the groups will be understood. I didn't understand. I misunderstood what was meant by the term relati. And I thought, you know, I interpreted it through my cultural grid because to translate that word in English would typically mean mistake but I didn't understand all the meaning that's wrapped up 
into that word. So I thought, and my, all of us thought, that that's a wrong word. And then it took time as I was immersed in the culture, I realized, oh, there's more to that than just mistake. And so it's really difficult to, to translate that word because depending on the context, it has much more meaning than I attributed to it. And I had to learn that as I was there. And so I was using a word that communicated something that was that misconstrued their understanding. They didn't hear what I was saying. And they actually heard something worse. And it's only as we did life together that they could see, well, something's wrong here. Their life does not match up to that. So what's going on here? This first principle is true. The greater the cultural distance between the groups, the less certain we can be that the messages communicated between the groups will be understood. You know, it's truly was seen with the, the Bindi and Anjali's Christian friends didn't understand that. That's the first principle. This example of guna leads us to the second principle and the example of the Bindi. The second principle states that if the hosts are to capture the meaning intended by the outside communicators, the outside communicators need to use the form of the host. So um, I was supposed to use the form of the galati rather than the form of guna if I wanted people to catch my, you know, what I really meant. Let me give another example. When my wife and I went to South Asia, we worked in a very conservative area. And the question my wife faced was whether or not to cover her head. Now, the local Christian friends told her to not cover her head because they didn't like how conservative the society was becoming. Because the society in that city had been a, a bit more progressive prior to that, but it was becoming increasingly more conservative. And um, the local Christian women wanted my wife and the other Western women to help slow this trend of it becoming conservative, but they didn't realize it was actually very conservative and always had been, just depended on the communities you were a part of. And the reason was because the, the local Christian women saw the head covering as a symbol of oppression and therefore you shouldn't wear it. Now, some of the wealthy women in the larger, more progressive cities in the country also saw the um, head coverings as oppressive, you know, and they're from the majority faith. So it's, it's not like these Christian women were alone. It's just, it put them in the, the higher economic categories for the people in that, in that city and other cities as well. Then there was one last concern that the local Christian women had. They said, if my wife wore the head covering, it would communicate to everyone that she was a Muslim. You know, that wouldn't be good to communicate that idea. So as the months passed and my wife was conflicted, she was saying, what do I wear the head covering? Do I not wear the head covering? But as the months passed, and the relationships developed in, in the community. Every woman my wife came in contact with had her head covered. 
they would put on the head covering whenever they left their houses. And my wife discovered that the point of the head covering was to communicate to everyone that the head covering indicated the woman was modest and of good character. Now, the audience my wife was communicating with was our neighbors, our colleagues, and the average person in the city when she would travel around. And she wanted to communicate to them that she was an upright, modest woman. I mean, those are Christian values. So my wife eventually realized the question was no longer, should I cover my head? The question was, what style of covering should I adopt? Because what you've discovered was that the different styles that were there, each style communicated the family's financial position within the community, as well as the family's religious affinities. Families who were very conservative and fundamentalist wore specific styles. It wasn't so much the head covering that mattered, it was the style of the head covering. So the principle is, if the hosts are to capture the meaning intended by the outside communicator, the outside communicator needs to use the form of the host. My wife did not want to communicate that she was a fundamentalist Muslim. So she adopted the style she saw the average middle-class women wearing. And so she communicated, I'm modest. And because of who we were, she's, you know, middle class. I mean, that's what we were. And it was totally appropriate and acceptable. It didn't communicate that she was a Muslim. It communicated that she was a modest, God-fearing person. And it was totally appropriate within, within the community. And then there's the, the third principle. And the third principle is if the outside communicators keep their own forms, the original meanings will be lost. The meanings that the outside communicators put to it will be lost. So <clears throat> the forms, even though they remain, the meaning will, be, will become absent. And we're, Jason, we're kind of coming to the end of this section. The, you know, our time here for today. So we'll pick that up in our next podcast. I, these three principles, like you said, are ones that flow from the things that we've talked about previously. They're applying these ideas because I thought about Pentecost being uh, not a erasure of the languages that uh, were spoken outside. It's Babel being redeemed, not Babel being consolidated. And so what we, uh, these principles are in line with that because we are trying to use the religious forms of the host culture to celebrate the work of God, not conquer the other culture for our culture, essentially. Right. It's somewhat of a cultural imperialism. If we're imposing our own forms, our own our own ideas on another culture and that's just i mean maybe there is a time for that it's you know i don't know i don't think people necessarily intended that but i think we're much more sensitive now to the reality that you know the, that culture is, is 
you know, it isn't, all that stuff is not demonic. And so therefore it doesn't have to re remain. Um, that which is demonic has to go, of course. But <clears throat> so much of what we, me people in the past attributed to being wrong, it was just, they just misunderstood uh, what, you know, the, the beauty and the diversity and the richness of, of culture across people groups. So I think we're more sensitive now, more aware, and praise God for that. But it's taking time it's because of our own superstitions. We're limited by our own um, lack of understanding. And, and that's why Paul says, you know, he, he prays in Philippians chapter 1, um, <clears throat> verses 9, you know, 10. He says, may your love abound more and more with knowledge and depth of insight so that you can discern what is best. So, I mean, that's what we're hoping, you know, as we grow in, in working among frontier peoples, you know, may our love abound more and more with knowledge and depth of insight. So we can actually discern what's best here and, you know, bring, you know, freedom to the cultures in which we're moving into to try to represent Jesus there so that um, people can, you know, see that, oh, this, this gospel truly is for me. You know, it's not a foreign thing. This is really what God is doing for me and my people in our culture. And when we, when we get closer and closer to that, it, it'll be just so it just becomes so much more beautiful. We'll take up that third principle next time uh, we meet together. And uh, thanks for your time today, Anthony. Hey, Jason, have a good day. Thanks for joining us on the Global Hearted Podcast. If you have more questions about how you can find ways to follow Jesus around the globe, or if you have questions you would like to hear Anthony answer, email us at anthony.taylor at globalhearted.com. Or to hear more episodes, go to globalhearted.com. And now receive a good word. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age.